Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode. Today, we have a guest, and I'm excited for this conversation. Today, we have Brittany Tachkov, and we are going to talk about all different ideas and topics because Brittany's already been talking to me in her head (laughs) over the last month or so, she says. Um, So, Brittany, would you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about um, who you are and what you're up to these days. Yes, I'm Brittany. Um, Like Kim said, I've been talking to her. I'm an overthinker. So uh, I just, I practice conversations in my head. And ever since she was like, you can come on. I was like, yes. And so then, of course, I've been um, talking in my head to her when I go on walks and like walk my dog and different things. Um, (laughs) And I love that because that's actually like my process too for the ideas that I have for the podcast. Yep. It's like I have the conversations in my head and then when they're kind of fully there, then they come out. <laughs> right. So we're just deciding what's coming up and uh, we kind of already decided that we may need to just have another conversation later uh, about different yep. things. But um, my st- story just in the last three years, uh, maybe four, I guess, uh, four years ago, I started a, um, music therapy program at hospice of the East Bay. Um, so I started a hospice music therapy program and, um, and since then it has grown to having two full-time music therapists and, two music therapy interns within this last six-month period. And um, within that, uh, a few different things have occurred. Um, I actually can track how long it's been. It's, it's going to be four years in May. I can track it because I've had my dog for four years. Um, his birthday is coming up in just a few days in April. Um, and then... I started my counseling degree with a marriage family child focus um, just about three years ago. It'll be three years ago, September, and I'm finishing that up in June. So I I did a part-time so I could continue working at the same time. Um, So I've been doing evening classes while working full-time in hospice music therapy, and... And then supervising. I've been supervising for the last two years um, and became a national rostered uh, internship site in 2020. Um, The application was accepted uh, after the pandemic started. So um, before that, I was university affiliated. And, um, And so I've had interns... Uh, start with me who had to move and some interns that will be coming up that will be moving into the area and then moving back within a pandemic um so it's um been juggling a lot of things and seeing things come to fruition in some amazing ways yeah um somewhere in there too yeah actually my my term ended right around when the pandemic started, but I was also the president and then past president of the California Association, which I started Mm. um, and co-founded in, oh, I 
think it was 2016. Um, I like creating things. <laughs> I like creating. Yeah, and that's like <laughs> no easy feat. I mean, all of these things that you're talking about, you're like, oh, yeah, I did this. I did this. But it's like actually so much work and so much dedication. You have to be so passionate about it to keep going through all the challenges. So I don't know if you want to get into that today. Yes. Let's, but I just want to mention, like, that's awesome, all I, those things. I, I want to I say that and then bring in humility, which is something that, honestly, I had to learn over time as a, as a mm. character trait. Because I say all of that, and I, I, I hear myself going back to this um, piece of me, which I think is common in our society, too, especially with social media, that we just share all the shiny accomplishments that we've had in our lives. And that's the piece that we put forward. So um, I hear that as I'm introducing myself, like, here's all my shiny gold stars (laughs) and little awards I can put and hang on a wall for myself. Um, And they also come with a lot of mistakes. They come with a lot of hard work and overworking, which I Mm. wouldn't necessarily encourage in hindsight. Um, There were a lot of things along the way that that meant that I was um, working without getting paid in different respects, right? When you start Mm -hmm. a state association, Mm -hmm. none of that work is paid. Um, It's volunteer leadership from the beginning. and um, there's elements to starting a program that are not, you know, covered within the time <laughs> or, or mm-hmm. even always covered within a job description. Right. Um, and, um, and there's elements of becoming a supervisor that aren't taught to you, uh, mm-hmm. that you have to learn through experience which we were talking about earlier, and now you're going to hear me click on my computer because <laughs> I'm going to find this quote that I keep forgetting by Oscar Wilde that says, experience is simply the name we give our mistakes. Hmm. I found this quote in this little quote calendar that I got from a friend in my degree program, and I don't remember when it was, probably sometime in March while I was talking to Kim in my head, and... <laughs> um, <laughs> And and then I had supervision with one of my interns, and I've just started every time I think, oh, if only, you know, whenever I think of how an intern might think, oh, I want more experience, or if I just Mm -hmm. had more experience. What if we said, if I just had more mistakes? If I I just had more mistakes, (laughs) then I could get there. (laughs) (laughs) And it doesn't feel good. Not at all. At the same time, <laughs> it's the truth. It's the, yeah. it's the truth behind being able to create things is that you make mistakes and you move through really uncomfortable situations. We were touching a little bit on like intersectionality, which I might talk about in a future episode, but that's part of it too. How do we work um, through our identity by acknowledging and sitting with the discomfort of mistakes and mm-hmm. being able to pick apart which which part is learning, which part is 
yes, next time I could do this instead of this. And then which parts are an emotional element of ourselves that we need to get comfortable with and maybe start making friends with. Mm. Um, And maybe um, have a space for that part of ourselves that might be getting um, anxious or sad or guilty um, or whatever emotion comes with that discomfort around needing more mistakes in order to grow and develop as a person and as a professional. If Mm -hmm. only we could make more mistakes. And I think about that, um, at least I try to. Again, I I could say, I tell my interns about my mistakes, you know, within the sessions. (laughs) And then I think back and I'm like, how many times do I really do that? But I try to. I I aim to point out moments when I was uncertain within within sessions and then um you know I I asked the intern like could you tell and a lot of times mm-hmm. I can't mm-hmm. I, I like look like I know what I'm doing but really I'm like looking through my iPad thinking like I need to keep chaining these songs in order to help this person fall asleep because they were really agitated and I don't know which thing to do next that falls within their genre mm. that also has principles that would help with their sleep. <laughs> and so yeah. I just keep scrolling and then strum and then scroll and then <laughs> strum. And I hope right. I'm going to find it. And then, oh, there it is. Phew. <laughs> Found it. Okay. <laughs> and then I, play oh, and I feel like every hospice music therapist <laughs> can relate with that scenario. <laughs> uh, but I only, you know... But I learned from a time when, like, I stopped and there was silence and someone, you know, became agitated again. Mm-hmm. And I learned that, oh, oh, continuing it is better. Even when you're uncertain, like, just keeping the movement or just saying something, like, when we're hesitating because mm-hmm. we don't know what the right thing to say is, that sometimes saying something... Um, is better than, you know, just, like, waiting. Of course, it it depends on where you fall in that spectrum, right? If you're someone who will always Mm -hmm. just jump in and say something and try and fix, maybe you do need to lean into the silence, so it's not Mm. a one-size-fits-all. But um, I do think about um, how sometimes just taking the leap Mm -hmm. and making the mistake... Or gaining the mistake, gaining the experience. I, I love saying it that way. Gaining the mistake. If you can gain the mistake, then you can go somewhere. Then you can do yeah. something. And it comes back to, I get this actually from rock climbing. So I used to be a tree climber. And then um, my parents, I think, thought it might be safer if I was attached to a rope. <laughs> and so then I was, I was rock climbing since I was 10 years old. Um, and I haven't actually climbed for a bit though. It's, it's been in and out of my, um, life for a few years. Um, but I learned like, it's just in my head, I would just go one, two, three, go. Like when I thought I couldn't reach mm. the next hold it one, two, three, go. And then what's the worst that happens? You fall and there's a, there's a rope that catches you or depending mm-hmm. on the kind of climbing, you actually will fall further. <laughs> um, sure. there's certain kinds of climbing where, um, where that 
that fall is actually you're not moving at all, so it's really not risky. Or sometimes you, you will actually fall a little bit. And that's the worst that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So if we can gain the mistake, you can also gain um, and achieve. Like you can also make something happen if you just go. Mm-hmm. And so so my internal process is like, one, two, three, go. If I'm feeling uncomfortable, that's when I know I need to lean into it. That's when I know I need to take the leap and gain the mistake. Yeah, I love that. I remember, um, I feel like most of my work has been hospice care. So I feel like the bulk of my mistakes and experiences have been in that realm. And I remember, so my internship was in New York City in hospice. And then I did hospice care in Minnesota. And those um, areas of the country are drastically different in like Mm -hmm. personality and way of being. And so this was a mistake I gained where I was working with a family in Minnesota and I was totally overstaying my welcome, Mm -hmm. but I didn't realize it Mm -hmm. because everyone in New York City would say, okay, that's good. That's enough. Like, thanks. Um, But this family in Minnesota, like, wasn't saying like, okay, that's enough. We're done. We can go now. And so it was this moment of I was overstaying and they were trying to communicate that to me yeah. and I wasn't hearing them yeah. until like the very end, like, okay, you can go now is <laughs> like their last straw, you know? Oh my gosh. And so that was a huge thing for me to learn as a clinician, like, okay, you have to be so much more perceptive of mm-hmm. what's going on and you know, pick up those nonverbal cues because not every family is going to tell you when your time is done or when they're done with music therapy. Oh, I can so relate to those (laughs) moments. In California, it's a mix. Um, That's where I'm at is in California. And it's a mix of, um, you know, I I really appreciate the ones who are just straight to the point and I can trust like I, I can put more trust in them telling me. And then there mm-hmm. are those who they say thank you once. Like, thank you for coming. That's it. And I'm thank like, you. okay, we're done. And I've actually had an intern <laughs> be like, how did you know to end it? I was like, well, they said thank you. Mm-hmm. And it felt like goodbye. Oh, <laughs> and that's so, so good. That's and so, so good. And so I didn't want to risk it, even though, you know, it could have still been like a 50-50 chance of like we could do one more song. Like it wouldn't push it too much. Right. But, um, and that still would be okay. Like it, it wouldn't really be crossing that. But at the same time, it's like, mm, I just didn't feel like risking it that time. I'm like. Right. Mm. So then I, so then I actually offered the, the kind of, you know, because questions can actually be really pointed if we're paying attention to our language. And I offered, you know, um, do you need anything else or are we done? So that's how I responded to the thank you Mm. was, do you need anything else or are we done? Um, Instead of being like, do you want one song or no more songs? Or do you want one Mm -hmm. or two? Or, you know, like, I kind of pointed it in the direction of leaving, but it was also still giving that out, like, and if you wanted me to stay, like if there was something you needed, it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then they were like, nope, we're done. I was like, okay, I've confirmed. 
the feeling to confirm it. I've confirmed (laughs) that the feeling was correct, and you're saying goodbye to me. Okay, we're good. We're done. Don't need anything else. Those feelings, I don't think that's something that we've really been taught in our music therapy education. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, trusting our intuition, focusing on what's happening inside of us as, as the clinician um, within the session. So this is where my master's in counseling, I think, has been invaluable. Yeah. Um, part of making that decision was actually writing the essays of, like, the letters of intention. Because I was really debating, like, do I want a music therapy master's? Do I want a counseling master's? Do I want a social work master's? I knew I wanted it to be within social services because that's where my program is. And my music, the music therapy is really under the social service department at the hospice that I work at. Um, and, um, and I was really interested in depth work and I, um, I can't pinpoint it. It it was just this sense that what I was doing as a hospice music therapist, that there was something I wasn't always understanding or getting. And Mm -hmm. I would be leaning into the social worker, leaning into spiritual care, um, or sometimes called chaplains. Um, And um, there was something there um, with certain families And a lot of times it was the families that they didn't want to meet as a group with a social worker. They didn't want to meet with spiritual care. They wanted, but they wanted music therapy and they wanted music therapy was almost like family sessions or music therapy was the processing. That was where the processing Mm -hmm. was happening. And, um, and I was pushing onto the edge of that scope within music therapy that comes Mm -hmm. with having the undergrad or the equivalency, you know, not the master's. I can't speak to what a music therapy master's would have added for me. I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. So when I was writing those letters of intention, I felt like the marriage family focus um, and that counseling piece was where I wanted to go. I wanted to go into Mm. the depth of what what is the, the depth? What is the feeling? What is the meaning behind this? And it has really brought in an understanding of the, um, I don't know if it's the science, but the evidence of the feeling, the evidence of the relationship and how that impacts um, the work and, um, and being able to really talk about transference and counter transference, not necessarily in a, in a psychodynamic way. I, my orientation is really more of the existential humanistic, even though I've been exploring gestalt a little bit with, Mm. um, with counseling and with the degree. Um, but it's also being aware that transference and countertransference happen, whether mm-hmm. you want it to or not, whether it's intentional or not, whether you are aware of it or not. So when you have a feeling in a session, it's about getting curious 
versus being uncomfortable with it. And I think there's some connotations mm. because of the origins of transference and countertransference and and how that um, may be linked to Freud and how Freud has a certain connotation and how he did psychoanalytic therapy and some of some of his history. Um, at the same time, some of those concepts are really important for how we interact within music therapy, um, within a music therapy relationship. When are we bringing something into the space? When is our client or the family or the facility we're going into bringing something into the space? And what do we do with that? So, um, I've come to, you know, from my perspective, I feel like the idea of leaving things at the door isn't really how it works. Mm -hmm. I almost wonder if it's more like leaving things on a shelf, like you come into the room and then like you have all of your life experiences are like on an invisible shelf next to you. So it doesn't mean you have to start pulling everything off the shelf and like spilling it into your client's world. Like, let me tell you about my family mm-hmm. relationships or this session I just had. Or, you know, like, right. that, of course, like that, we want to keep it on the shelf. Like, we're not trying to spill that in. And mm-hmm. there are some feelings from those experiences that we are holding in our bodies and that are coming with us. Mm-hmm. How could that be a tool for empathy? If we mm-hmm. just came from a session where someone was having a pain crisis, and now we're in another session where someone's having pain, but it's not a crisis. So we don't want it, you know, we don't want to go straight to that last session and think, oh my gosh, we're in another crisis and we have to act this way. So that's where the awareness piece comes in. Like, oh, like, but I can also bring in like this empathy of, what it's like when that, why it's scary to have this level of pain because it could become that level of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and they may have experienced that not too long ago and, and how you can help manage that now so it doesn't get to that place and support them now. So just having that, how, how you can use what you're bringing and carrying with you yeah. To help you. I feel like that's something that, um, I don't know. I, I feel like when I went through my music therapy education, it was always like, like you said, leave your stuff at the door. Um, don't bring yourself into the session. Don't bring your baggage into the session. Um, and I feel like that was kind of misleading for me as a young clinician mm-hmm. Because now I feel like I'm divorcing myself right. when I walk into a room. And, but I have my experience in my life, like I have so much that I can bring um, to this experience and this session. And like you were saying, this is a tool for empathy. Right. I can relate with what this family is going through because I've had deaths in my family. Right. Um, and it's not like I'm going to take up the session time for me to process my stuff. Right. But you're not going to start going... telling the story of this is when my loved one died. And like, that's not right. what I mean, right? You're not going to. Exactly. You're not doing, you don't want to bring that in. 
you also want to be aware of um, when, when we can be aware of what we're bringing in. When we can be friends with, like, what's on our shelf mm-hmm. or maybe the bags that we're rolling in. We're just rolling in the bags and leaving them near the door. Like, but they're still there. Yeah. Okay, the bags <laughs> the yeah. bags are there. But they're invisible, right? Like, the family's not going to see them unless we point to them. So, um, you know, when we know and can see what's ours, what we're carrying in, that will also help us see what is theirs, because they are going to yeah. put things onto us, mm-hmm. consciously, unconsciously, and that can make us feel a certain way. So the best example that comes to mind was actually something that happened to one of my interns where they were mistaken for a grandchild. And some of that is because, mm-hmm. um, you know, the patient is has, has having confusion. It's also very hard of hearing, and now we're wearing masks. Mm-hmm. So some of that, like, it's just gonna so like much. it's just <laughs> it's yeah. just happening. And at the same time, okay, now, and I think that actually happened to me with the same person too. Um, but now it's like okay, so they think you're a grandchild. So what's the pro of of correcting that? And how much do you want to? you know, just make sure that they're aware, like, you know, this isn't happening. And then Mm -hmm. what's the pro of allowing them to think that you're a grandchild? Um, And then what's the con of both, right? Is there a burden Mm -hmm. and a benefit of this very clear example of countertransference, like textbook? (laughs) (laughs) Um, is Is there something... Um, and, and being able to weigh that in the moment so that you can see, is this a benefit? Is mm-hmm. it making them more comfortable that they're familiar versus they're this, you're this music person that they keep forgetting who you are? Mm-hmm. Would that actually be more distressing than allowing them to, you to be a grandchild? Or um, if you are a grandchild, like what relationship do they have with the grandchild? Is this, you know... Right. Um, more entangled and that could lead to this other distress. So what's presenting itself in the moment? Is it feeling comfortable? Is it feeling uncomfortable? Um, is that your discomfort or is it their discomfort with being known as like, do you feel like you're deceiving them by, Mm, by leaning mm -hmm. into that label? So is that yours or is that theirs? And if they're comfortable but maybe you're a little uncomfortable making the decision based on what will help them with comfort because that's our goal in hospice, in hospice right. music therapy. And I feel like that's like the mistake that is gained or the experience that is gained. Right. Um, it goes so much deeper than, okay, what music are you going to play? Right. <laughs> There's so much more to consider and to hold. Um, and this, this beautiful work that we do. Yeah. And that's where I feel like my degree. And then also now I have experience in the present moment. I don't think I even shared, um, I'm working as a hospice music therapist and I'm doing counseling as a marriage family therapy trainee for children in schools. Um, Mm -hmm. so it's mental health counseling and, 
especially within this additional experience, um, and, um, and also in the degree, just being aware of when our experiences and our um, emotions and our family histories are changing our actions. Mm. When is, that's, that's what we really do need to be thinking about. And that mm-hmm. can show up within the music that we choose. It can show up in the question that we're willing to ask or not willing to ask. It can yeah. um, show up in the interventions that we're comfortable with or not comfortable with. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I've also started leaving music therapy or evidence of the music therapy at the door. So mm. um, because now I, I see how sometimes the verbal piece and the relationship opens the door to music therapy. Mm. There are times mm-hmm. where if we have the relationship then we can do music therapy. And then there are times when music therapy creates the relationship so then processing can happen. Mm -hmm. And so there are times when I literally leave my guitar. Mm. I'm thinking about we have uh, one six-bed inpatient unit. Otherwise, it's in homes. I couldn't exactly Mm -hmm. do this in a house necessarily. But sometimes... um, if like the family is very much on board for music therapy, but maybe the, the person yeah. isn't. And, and so I can leave my stuff in another room yeah. or in the inpatient unit. It's right outside the door. And all I bring in is like my iPad and my phone mm-hmm. and me. Mm-hmm. And then I meet the person. Yeah. And I found that sometimes that's so much less invasive Mm-hmm. Um, less confusing, even. Less, sometimes less confusing, <laughs> and um, and I've I've done music therapy, and this might be something that people agree with or not agree with. I've done music therapy without singing for someone, mm. without playing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the example that comes to mind is. I wrote a song with a daughter at a bedside, um, and it was a, it was it was a patient where they were at a stage where the family was like, "I don't think we need to play music in the room." And this is where I, I didn't even bring in the instrument. I was just it was just me, and I met them first. Like, how are things going right now? Mm-hmm. It was just a family member at the bedside, and the nurse was saying, it would be really helpful if you went to this room. (laughs) Mm. Um, And so I was a person with them. I was talking to them. I was asking them about the person. I was asking about their experience with music, but not necessarily pushing it into like, oh, I know a country song. You know, like Mm -hmm. it was just Mm -hmm. it was just part of the exploration. It was just integrated into like, who is this person? And then how would you describe them? It's one of my favorite uh, prompts mm. for songwriting and so then I could write down all of those words I didn't even sing the song to them I just mentioned how I could put these words to music if you're interested in that mm. and then and I thought that this daughter was gonna say no 
I'm going to be perfectly yeah. honest. I did not think that they were going <laughs> to, like, I thought, like, I don't, I don't know if we're going to do any, you know, music. This might just be one initial assessment, and then we don't do this anymore, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And they were so excited. Aww. And um, and that person died within, I think, a few days. And they specifically asked the staff at the inpatient unit, oh, they, this per- the music therapist said they were going to work on a song. Like, is it ready yet? Can I get... Like, they followed oh. up later. Wow. Yeah. And the music didn't even come in until I recorded this song and I sent it to them. Wow. And, I, and that was it. That was the uh, musical element. Everything else yeah. was verbal and presence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if we can be verbal and present <laughs> mm-hmm. and hold the space yeah. without music, that can also lead to mm-hmm. the music therapy piece, right? Mm-hmm. But the music therapy piece was just one... If you think of the amount of time, (laughs) if you think of it on the scale of time, how much of that time would someone call a music Mm -hmm. therapy intervention? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The guitar never came into the room. I never sang a note. It's so interesting. Um, Yeah, I feel like we, um, I mean, there, I feel like there's different thoughts around music therapy, you okay. know, like music therapy philosophy, which right. I really want to do some more research on, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> it's like something that's been going in my head. Um, I, yeah, I feel like there's such a huge focus on the music element, which I guess that that's warranted yeah. as music therapy, um, but it's almost like we miss that just purely relational piece sometimes because we're so focused or like, right. you know, being um, like an intern or new professional, we're like, I want to nail this intervention. And then it's like, you forget to just show up as yourself as a person right? and how like rapport building is, you know, nearly a hundred percent just being a human with another human. Right. Um, And it's not to say that there's also times when the music leads the session. So it's not, I think I always, um, I think I learned this actually from a social worker I work with, um, this idea of using and instead of but. Mm -hmm. So, and I think I actually even learned that from a professor in my undergrad. Uh, It just stuck with me more the more I heard it from my colleague. Um, Yeah. This idea that we can both, have music lead and music be the builder of that relationship and there are Mm -hmm. whole sessions where all I'm doing is playing and it's all that kind of receptive piece and that Mm -hmm. is the process that is where change is happening and uh, and that is everything that is the relationship that is the change that is the Mm end-all be-all music can do that and On the other side is when the verbal can be where the relationship happens, where the change happens, where um, where everything is verbal. That may not be music therapy. If we step one layer in, like 
Mm-hmm. If we think of those as the ends of, of our scale, <laughs> there's this place in the middle mm-hmm. where, where we are overlapping with other professionals. And, and in this case, I'm thinking about where music therapy is overlapping with the counseling, social work, that side. Because music mm-hmm. therapy then also can overlap with the physical therapy, the speech therapy. Um, right. And it was actually my supervisor with um, my, as a marriage family therapy trainee who talked about the Venn diagram. So like, where is it Mm. that we're actually Mm -hmm. meeting in this middle place where we're pulling from and maybe starting the relationship or maybe the change, right? So maybe the relationship is built with music therapy Mm -hmm. and then the change happens within the verbal. Or the relationship mm-hmm. is built within the verbal, and then the mm-hmm. change happens within the music. Um, yeah. And that's where I started feeling that blurred line of, especially when music built the relationship, mm-hmm. and then they wanted to talk. <laughs> yeah. Is that's where, how are we preparing ourselves as professionals? Because what I would try and do is bring in another mm-hmm. person. I try to bring mm-hmm. a spiritual care counselor with me. And you like felt the edge try of to, your training. Like, I would try to go to them. And there are cases yeah. when that's ex- exactly what you should do. Like just bring in that other person and use your mm-hmm. relationship to bridge their relationship and then they can go somewhere. There are also those who that's just not going to work because mm-hmm. the relationship is happening within the music. So then you bring in someone who will who has to use words mm-hmm. to build relationship and they're not going to be, they're not going to get to that same place. And yeah. they're maybe not that same place as quickly, which in hospice is really mm-hmm. an important piece is how do we build that relationship when we don't yeah. know how many sessions, which even of course in, mental health counseling, sometimes you don't know how long they're going to stay around. Um, There's just more of a likelihood that you'll get a certain number of of sessions and get to this kind of working phase. And in hospice, it's like, well, you have one session at a time. So um, it's that middle space that I've been so interested in. Yeah. And that I've gotten to explore so much better. Because there's also this piece where, you know, counselors could use music right Mm -hmm. technically if we're thinking about um yeah particularly if we're thinking about how music could be an emotional trigger Mm -hmm. wouldn't a counselor be excellently trained to totally. <laughs> to deal with I an think emotions about this a lot too. <laughs> that come up from music now where they might right. fall short is um the risks of overstimulation. So I actually did a presentation mm. through my um, trainee experience um, on therapeutic music and music therapy. And I loved putting it together because I've now, it's helped me differentiate what is, what is music therapy and what is music in counseling. Yeah. And what are those differences and where is there an overlap and where could we as music therapists actually encourage the mm-hmm. use of music within different scopes of practice? Right. And I think that's helped me B, 
be an interdisciplinary team member because hospice is very interdisciplinary. Um, and if you can't be a part of the team, if you can't acknowledge where others can do some of what you're doing, just like how you can do some of what they're doing, but not in the mm-hmm. same way. I think about that, with, especially with symptom management yeah. or with um, processing certain relationships or emotions. Um, when we think about how music therapy can help within an emotional or spiritual realm, that means that we're also potential mm-hmm. overlap with social work and spiritual care. Um, right. So if we can acknowledge that, oh, they could also be playing music on the TV or through CDs or they could do that Mm -hmm. during care or bed baths or wherever someone might have spikes in symptoms or they could also um, play music, sometimes even live music for Mm -hmm. certain patients. Um, Particularly with spiritual care, um, I found that they can sing and have a good mm-hmm. voice or play guitar better than I can. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> or, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where do we support and uplift that and then help differentiate yeah. and then help work together in it's, those elements? Yeah. Um, it's so important. Because, I mean, they're yeah. simply... Not enough music therapists to go around. <laughs> not enough for us to be the owners of music, that's for sure. Right. We are not. Of course. We are definitely not the owners of, of music and how it can help and be supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, even if we think about our origin story, we're missing so many elements of how music is healing and has been used in healing in different cultures. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And we, um, it makes me think about the, again, I feel like I've been learning this so much more in my program. Um, you know, the, the generational elements that we carry as a music therapist. Hmm. Um, we carry conflict within our field, right? AMTA didn't form until a lot later than some other organizations in other fields mm. that really at least quote their founding around the same time, the World Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Again, that's, <laughs> I think, up for debate in some regards, but maybe the formalized, sure. our formalized westernized definitions started coming (laughs) around that time um but we carry we carry that conflict even in counseling right there's a history of um pathologizing women pathologizing Mm -hmm. um different gender identities or sexual orientation like we we carry a lot in our histories within a profession that we that is kind of within this music therapy identity and I don't know how often we sit and explore that mm, and sit with mm-hmm. with what we're carrying and it all comes full circle to what we carry into the room 
<laughs> yes. So we are carrying yeah. every all of the connotations, all of our professors mm-hmm. and their professors and their professors. <laughs> I think about this all the time. <laughs> um, concept of what music we carry yeah. that with us, and I and I think having interns has really brought a lot of mm. that in into my um more into my awareness um yeah is what are those concepts that we're carrying Mm -hmm. and then trying to attempting to facilitate what is yours and what is theirs right what is like what is true to you in your music therapy what do you really resonate with from what you learned and what could you look at with a more critical eye and challenge and mm-hmm. um, maybe decide to not relate with, but also understand that you carry that? Because mm-hmm. that was the voice that was in yeah. your ear for two years or four years. or <laughs> Right. Um, I feel this within myself all the time where it's like these opposing voices or feelings within me. And I'm like, where is this from? And which one is me? Um, And I wonder for you, like, is there anything, like, as an example that sticks out that you've had to um, examine or let go of where you're like, okay, I got this from someone else or my education or some other place in the world or in in music therapy um, circles that's not actually me? And how I practice music therapy or think about music therapy. I think a part of me that I've had to make my own is around outcomes in music Mm. therapy. Mm -hmm. And I think what helped with that was the initial contrast between my schooling, which has a lot of behavioral, mm-hmm. you know, we have observation class and we're tracking behaviors and, and, yeah. and those are excellent skills. It really opens your eyes to some subtleties and some observable behaviors. And then you go into hospice and you're told you have to document to decline Mm-hmm. and you're not really looking for long-term progress. You're looking mm-hmm. for within session, mm-hmm. and you have to chart it in a way that doesn't also disqualify them for the service. Right. Because, unless it really does, like unless it's really generalizing, like I've had cases like that. where Can you, <laughs> can you explain that a little bit for yeah. anyone listening who doesn't have any experience in hospice care? Yes, okay. So, um, in order to be on hospice as an adult, pediatrics is different. My experience is really with adults in hospice. Um, you have to have a prognosis of six months or less. And that doesn't mean that you're time stamped at like in six months, you are going to, (laughs) this is going to be your last day. It, it has ranged from hours to years, um, Mm -hmm to graduating, to coming off hospice, because it's no yeah. longer evident that you have a six-month prognosis. 
and that's decided by the interdisciplinary team, bringing together evidence and presenting it to the physician, who then sometimes even asks the question, do you think they'll be around in six months? Mm-hmm. Um, if that evidence is a little bit iffy, if we're kind of on the fence, um, some great physicians will ask, you know, do you think they'll be around or not? Um, yeah. And so, so that means that the interdisciplinary team is looking for evidence that with a, whatever diagnosis is their primary, whatever diagnosis we think would be the reason for that prognosis, the reason that they'd have six months or less left in their life, um, that what can we see within their behaviors or between sessions, you know, were they walking with a walker and now they're in bed? That's one of the clearest examples. Mm -hmm. Um, Or um, they're losing speech, so they could say this many words and now they say this many words and now they're not speaking. Um, So there's different layers of, of that evidence of decline. It could be cognitive, it could be... Um, verbal, it could be physical, and it depends on the diagnosis, which of those things will, will be the best evidence. And that is what qualifies them to continue having services. Mm-hmm. So they could have been on for six months already, and then now they're having all, all of these different signs that they're not improving and that there's a decline somewhere. And so then they, can, they could stay on. And they, it could still seem like they're going to have six months or less. Um, mm-hmm. And that could still mean that in six months we're reevaluating. It's usually actually every two yeah. to three months that you reevaluate. <laughs> um, so it's both um, objective and then also open to the person-by-person kind of unknowns. So music therapy is contributing to that. And my behavioral training helps me see those signs and really tune into some subtle differences. Mm-hmm. At the same time, why is it that we need music therapy for a, <laughs> for a hospice patient? And that's where we're documenting what is the change that is happening within the session. Mm-hmm. Are they smiling? Are they singing a certain amount of words? Are they making eye contact? I mean, at some, depending on the, where they are in their progression and what their diagnosis is, eye contact could be huge. Mm-hmm. Um, just opening their eyes could be huge. Um, and, and so we have to hold both. So I think mm-hmm. having that contrast made me think, well, a behavioral lens and that idea of improvement is not going to work. <laughs> so that's already contra- right. it's already contradicting itself. Yeah. So what do we do with that? And yeah. uh, and so I had to sit with within myself, um, you know, that I at my core am not behavioral, cognitive behavioral, DBT. Mm-hmm. I was trained by someone who very much was, also mm-hmm. was open to, you know, talked about other orientations as well, 
and brings that into their teaching and is actually very aware of that, bringing that into mm-hmm. the teaching. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And so that's going to really influence how I look at someone and I've seen how that can influence how interns look at someone. Mm. And it has the risk of leaning into ableism. Mm. L- leaning into a focus on, like, you have to, <laughs> you, you have to have this level of response for it to be a good session. Or this level mm. of response for music therapy to be indicated. Um, yeah. and I've never <laughs> thought about that in terms of ableism. Um, it's like once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, yeah. and so I, I just see it everywhere. Um, and even within my work, I, I have to be conscious of when am I seeing that? Um, mm-hmm. And when is there a time when we would consider someone not getting music therapy when actually like this is part of their disease progression. So now they're sleeping Mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean like we're going to sing to someone who's just sleeping all the time once a week. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, but, and then, and then I think about, um, how's the family doing with that change? Mm Mm-hmm. If I was someone who was locked within my body and sleeping more of the time but could still hear everything, would I want someone to play for me? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we balance that with, like, but then if you think about measurable outcomes, is it there? Right. Is there yeah. is there enough? <laughs> and I use quotes. Mm-hmm. You can't see my quotes if you're listening yeah. to this one. <laughs> enough. <laughs> Um, so being able to sit with that tension, because I also don't want to be mm-hmm. like, okay, everybody can get music therapy. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like, I don't want, you know, it, it, not to make it sound like there aren't times when music therapy is not indicated. There are times when music therapy is not indicated. How are mm-hmm. we making that decision? Yeah. And... And how can I pull from this more behavioral lens? And actually, I love CBT because of the mindfulness piece and that piece I really bring in mm-hmm. a lot. Um, so how can we pull from or, or, or make friends with how we were trained mm-hmm. and look at that and then, and then decide which pieces are helpful Yeah, and then which pieces are not so helpful. And then being aware when the not-so-helpful pieces are showing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like that whole thing right there describes, like, the new professional's journey. Because, like, I think about myself as a new professional and how I wasn't even aware. Like, I was aware that there were other ways of doing music therapy, but I wasn't aware of um, what... Um, internally like I really resonated with versus what I was taught it's like I was in the process of figuring that out Um, and it can be so confusing it can be frustrating Mm -hmm. and I feel like that's where a lot of us consider leaving the field because we're like 
it just, something's not jiving and I don't know what it is. So I want to just, you know, try something else. Right. Um, but then that trying something else piece can often lead you on a really cool, like secondary path (laughs) and open up your music therapy practice. And now it's more fulfilling and more enriching and, and, and I also think like with all of this, it's just like, there are so many more questions to ask, mm-hmm. so many more things to be curious about and wonder, okay, this feeling that I have, is it necessary for my music therapy practice or is that something I was taught from this very narrow right. frame of reference? Right. Um, and then to what I've, because I'm a verbal external processor. Mm-hmm. That is how I process. This is why I love talking <laughs> and presenting, and this is why I'm on this podcast right now. Right. <laughs> um, and and so the other element of that is um, when in doubt, get a second opinion. Oh, yeah. So um, that could be a colleague. You know, I, I do feel like supervision is, is very much – um, talked about, I felt like when I was a a new professional, I was like, I really want a mentor, but I have no Mm -hmm. idea how to find one. And I, and I would, and I reached out and I, I met different music therapists and coming back to trusting a feeling, Mm -hmm. I didn't know it then, but I think now I could, I, I just didn't feel like I was finding the right person. Yeah. Yeah. Or, and I also didn't feel like I was finding a person who was ready to take that role for me either. Like, mm. and then mm-hmm. I didn't want to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. and so I, I found community and, and created community in other ways. Um, mm-hmm. one of the places I worked before I started like a music therapy call for these hospice music therapists. I actually used to organize in the Bay Area hospice music therapy gatherings and then at a certain point I was oh, just cool got tired of setting <laughs> those things up <laughs> um so it comes with both right it can be both exciting yeah. and it can be tiring and at a certain point I'm like if someone else would like to organize these I will come and right. otherwise um mm-hmm. but that's we really all are cool. connected for now we have each other's yeah. emails um I will leave it up and now and then because of some of those connections, I now have like my my group of of peer supervision. Mm-hmm. We actually Marco Polo as well as oh, me. Oh, nice! It's really fun. <laughs> so Marco Polo, the app, right? Yes. When yeah. you're doing video messages, it's perfect for oh, me yeah. as an external processor. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Thank you to I don't remember uh, who in our group um, decided to use that. I didn't have that app until later. I, I love but. though how you, how you sought that out yourself and then created it. Right. And it, but it took time, right? It, it wasn't, yeah. it took time and work to find mm-hmm. the right people where I have the right level of trust and challenge. And, mm. um, and then, uh, even going to my coworkers and you know just checking myself to make mm-hmm. sure like is this just me thinking in this way or is this reality 
and then seeing what their reality is and then, you know, trying to compare and help parse it out. Mm-hmm. I think when, when working even with one individual and then when you add in family and how that happens with, with hospice work or even when you're working with children, mm-hmm. parents um, and the parent influence, um, it, it, it blurs together in a way where sometimes it's actually both. <laughs> it can be both from that, that voice in your head, the, the education you received, and it can mm-hmm. be part of reality, but maybe just one piece of that needs to be removed and then it's, it's clearer. We're all working in a gray area. We're human beings in mm-hmm. relationship, um, <laughs> which means that it will never be, it will never be, you know, clearly picked apart mm-hmm. because yeah. we are human beings. And they even just, just music itself. About. Yes. Music itself is, is nuanced. Oh, so it's yeah. like we're, we're kind of setting ourselves up in this profession for not having a clear-cut answer <laughs> or the perfect evidence for this, this, or that. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm hoping that this podcast serves even a little bit as that, um, that mentor or that safe space for music therapists to ask questions and get insight on things maybe that you've never thought about before um, yeah. and have support along the way and maybe find people who are also listening to this podcast where you can start, you know, peer supervision groups or whatnot. That's kind of like um, an ideal or like a, a vision of mine yeah. that this can turn into. I know um, my personal mission, which now that I think about it, has been followed pretty well so far. Um, I was in, <laughs> I was in a um, trying to remember was it it was a music it was at a conference. I think it was like a leadership training. It's like a, it was a free conference session or C, free CMT I think like pre conference mm. where we where it was the first time I made a mission statement. And it was around oh, yeah. um, creating connection mm-hmm. and realizing, like, oh, yeah, I was doing that before I made that mission statement. And then I mm-hmm. just keep doing, like, the connection piece keeps coming yeah. up for me. Um, it's like the, the essence of you. And it's trying to demystify connection, too. Mm-hmm. I think there's sometimes... Um, I don't know, just an expectation we set around what what a mentor should look like for us, what supervision mm-hmm. should look like for us, how we're going to get there, or maybe we haven't even thought of how we're going to get there, and then it becomes too overwhelming. Yeah. Or we just don't want to pay money, or... <laughs> right, um, it's so tough. We don't want to, you know... And this is from, and some of that too is like, I'm an extrovert with some introvert tendencies. And, um, so then it's easy for me to say like, of course I put all this work into finding connection. I'm a verbal processor plus Mm -hmm. extrovert. (laughs) 
Like, I'm going to just put myself out there. Um, Maybe that doesn't come as easily to you. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. So maybe you just find one person that you went to school with. And you talk to them. And you know that you have each other's numbers. Yeah. And you give each other permission to call each other. You like you have a frank conversation around like, is it okay if like I don't answer because I'm doing yeah. things like you know just <laughs> um, so if that makes more sense versus you know emailing Kim <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you don't feel like reaching out to her on social media <laughs> or for me it was emailing um, okay what is you know what's okay for you because I think. What we see are the people who are willing to put themselves out there. Mm-hmm. Where that either comes more naturally or they've done the work to make that <laughs> possible for themselves. I don't think everyone who's out there in social media is comfortable. <laughs> but yeah. But they've they've done what they they've done the work, whatever that is for them. Um, so what is your comfort level? What is it that you need so that when you carry your shelves and your bags into the room (laughs) and they spill out in the Mm. session, the shelves (laughs) just come falling on you. And you gain a beautiful mistake. (laughs) When you gain a beautiful mistake, you have someone Mm. that helps you feel like you gained a mistake. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is not a bad thing. Like, it's actually a human thing it's a human to go thing. through things that are challenging and that just helps you grow and learn and become a better person and music therapist yeah um so we've been talking for a little bit now um <laughs> okay so i want to ask you um where people can find you online if they want to connect with you And I also want to ask if there's any last piece that you'd like to share today. So you can find me, let's see if I remember my own Instagram. (laughs) I have it here if you don't. Oh, good. (laughs) At Brittany.mtvc, I think is Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, That's probably the easiest. Uh, Not that I always keep it updated. You'll just see a bunch of quotes on there. Um, (laughs) But that's that's probably the easiest way to just reach out and connect. And just don't be offended if I don't see it right away, but I will come back to you. Um, and I love connection. And even if it's just to, if you want help finding other connections, mm. it doesn't have to be about me. It could be about mm-hmm. you wanting to create what you need. Mm-hmm. You could also reach out to me. Um, also hospice music therapy and the business elements of hospice music therapy. Um, definitely reach out. And, um, as far as anything else, just try to, I guess just try to make friends with yourself. Mm. And, um, and knowing that that what you're doing is enough. Mm-hmm. I think those would be, you know, if I was talking to past Brittany, 
mm-hmm. the Britney that had, didn't have all the gold stars to introduce themselves, <laughs> <laughs> especially in that first year when I was like, if I can just get uh, to two years of ex- of mistakes, but in mm-hmm. the past I say, if I could just get to two years of experience, yeah. then I'll feel better. <laughs> yeah. Um, and being able to sit with, um, sitting with the mistakes and with the hazards and with the heaviness, mm-hmm. um, I could have a whole nother thing talking about that. Um, and there's one book recommendation I can put out there, which is, Ooh. um, The Resilient Practitioner. It's for helping professionals. It was one of the first books in my degree program which, believe it or not, one of the first classes was called Professional Identity. Imagine mm. if we had that in music therapy. Oh, um, my goodness. <laughs> we should have that for, for like, the certification. Right? <laughs> just a whole class identity. on professional identity. Um, wow. So it was part of that class because part of that class was That's really That's for the um, counseling for my, degree? Yeah, for my counseling At- degree. LMFT, is that what you're doing? Yes, it's counseling with the marriage family therapy focus, so I can get a license in marriage family therapy in California. Gotcha. It gets confusing. There's a lot of different (laughs) There's all these letters (laughs) and ways of doing it. Find find what, you know, the letters that make sense to you. But The Resilient Practitioner, I love it because the first half of the book is all just talking about um, this one chapter that I include in supervision too is the hazards of practice. It's mm. talking about why it's hard to help other people. Yeah. And then it goes into how you care for yourself. So that's what I would encourage people to do. Mm-hmm. How do we sit with the mistakes so that we can gain them and they can become beautiful? Yeah. It's like welcoming them in to life and our professional journeys and they can still be scary and they can still be uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and that might not change (laughs) I don't think my mistakes have gotten that much more comfortable (laughs) I know Um, (laughs) but I sure do look at them differently and process them differently and sit Mm -hmm. with them differently and like how 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 would it change things like in our profession as a whole if we all accepted mistakes and welcomed them as a natural normal thing mm-hmm. and worked through them and like allowed other people to make mistakes too right um not that we shouldn't call people out and Right. Keep people accountable. Or keep people safe. Like, that's the other, right? Like, mm -hmm. not that we want to put people in situations where where safety is at risk. And there's a space where it doesn't go to that extreme. Mm -hmm. Um, Or maybe it goes in that direction, but then because we're gaining the mistake, we stop it before it it escalates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How many people do we lose from the profession or even bar from certain professions mm-hmm. because they weren't allowed to gain a mistake yeah. or they didn't feel like they had that permission or they had to hide all mm-hmm. of their mistakes in a suitcase and then it just spilled out into mm-hmm. where they yeah. landed. Yeah, that's that's part of this podcast too. Um 
you know, saying not your average music therapist, thinking that, oh my goodness, if I make these mistakes, if I am a bad music therapist in this way, I must, I must be not the norm. When in reality, we're all out there messing things up and picking up the pieces and trying to do our best. That's just what it is. Um, And if we can come together in that, I think we'd be so much stronger. So much stronger. Yeah. Well, Brittany, thank you so much for this conversation today. Um, I really enjoyed it and hope to have you back sometime. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Yep. We will talk to you soon.